From a tiny closet studio sandwiched between neckties and suit coats, I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. President Trump's policies to rebuild the economy have put us into a powerful prosperity boom. And there is no end in sight. Let's not make this any harder than it needs to be. Low tax rates, regulatory rollback, energy openings, trade reforms, growth, 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 growth. That was the president's head economist, Larry Kudlow, last year, talking about the economy. Isn't it amazing the difference a year and a global pandemic makes? The White House is grappling with devastating news on the economy as some advisors to the president are warning of unemployment numbers straight out of the Great Depression. J. Crew has just announced it's filing for bankruptcy protection. It's the first national retailer to take this action since the pandemic forced the company to temporarily close all of its J. Crew and Madewell stores. You're seeing uh, the stock market move well below that. Right now, it looks like the Dow is clo- down by about 6.9%. This is some massive pressure. If you haven't looked at your 401k over the last couple of weeks, I wouldn't recommend recommend doing it today because uh, just over the last two weeks, we had already seen the markets down by about 12 percent, a little more than that. We cannot go back to normal until we have vaccine. There, There is no business as usual. Things will change. Now, this is just a small glance at what happens when you shut down the engine that is the U.S. economy. Everything changes. But for the most part, we're the beneficiaries of a great economy because our system is based around free market ideas. Economic freedom works. All around the world, we see what is possible when freedom prevails. And we believe it's okay to ask, how can we make things even better? So that's what we're going to do on this episode. Every year, the Heritage Foundation measures countries on how free their economies are by examining several factors, including rule of law, size of government, regulatory efficiency, and open markets. Each country is assigned a score out of 100. So, for instance, the highest ranked country in the index is Singapore, and they have a score of 89.4. The lowest ranked country is North Korea with a score of 4.2. The U.S. is ranked 17th with a score of 76.6. How easy is it for farmers to grow crops and sell them abroad? What are the government-imposed rules standing in the way of a business starting? Do individuals have access to a fair justice system to settle disputes? Now, there are obviously several factors that make up the ranking, but suffice it to say that with the Chinese virus and the rebuilding that's going to have to take place, now is the time to make the changes to improve our ranking. It really isn't just about getting a a better grade on a report card. It's about giving Americans a better life. That's Nick Loris. He's a friend of Heritage Explains and is also the deputy director of the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. This week, he walks us through the ways the U.S. can improve our standing in the world as economically free and also talks about what it looks like to rebuild after closing down a major portion of our economy due to COVID-19. 
Now, before we get started, I wanted to let you know about an exciting platform available from the Heritage Foundation. While we can't host events in person right now, Heritage Events Live hosts webinars every day on a variety of topics ranging from ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic to the CARES Act and the economy. These webinars are free, and you can find out more by going to www.heritage.org events or by clicking the link in the show notes where we've posted it. Stay informed and stay connected to Heritage. Log on today. Okay, let's get to our interview with Nick Loris. Nick, thank you so much for coming back on the show with us. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me back. Okay, so this report is is dense. It is, uh, but it is chalked with full of incredible uh, bits as to how to raise our economy, to raise our score in the index of economic freedom. So I, I'm just curious, though, before you go through that, walk us through the genesis of the project. You know, what was your goal starting out? Yeah, one thing I've noticed. Uh, during my time at Heritage with the Index of Economic Freedom is that every year when we have our big release in the beginning of the year, there's so much interest from uh, other countries, uh, you know, embassies uh, come in, uh, ambassadors come in and, and want to know what their score is. They want to know how they can do better. They want to compare what their score is to their neighboring countries. And, uh, the genesis of this report was really to say, you know, U.S. policymakers need to approach the index of economic freedom with that same sense uh, of urgency. I wanted to jump in right now because it seemed like one of the more uh, standout areas in the report, um, and this is a federal problem, um, is our budget and our spending. Um and that has really taken our rating down a lot because we continue to spend, we continue to go into debt. Talk a little bit about forming um, that and ways that we can improve on it because it's so broad and it's so deep. Yeah, without a doubt. If you look at our score in terms of property rights, in terms of government and integrity, uh, we do very well, uh, especially compared to to other countries around the world. Uh, obviously, our government spending and fiscal situation uh, is not great. Uh, it, it's the lowest score that we have. Uh, given the responses to COVID, uh, it's only going to get worse. Um, and if you look at the gross federal debt, um, is currently more than 100% of GDP. And what does that mean? Stop stop right there because because that always confuses me. What does that mean 100% of GDP? If you look at uh, the gross federal debt, um, you know, the 22 uh, trillion dollars um, is is effectively larger uh, than the size of our economy. Um, and uh, that is problematic. Um, you know, these higher levels of government spending um, in comparison to the overall size of the economy uh, just continue to grow at a pace that is unsustainable. Um, so over 100% of our GDP, that means that if the government spends all this money, no matter how much we produce, no matter how much we, we make in America, we're still in that one year not going to have enough money to pay for it. Is that That's effectively right. Yeah, that's okay. a 
that's a better way of explaining it than I did. And even if, even if you look at the the interest on the federal debt, uh, what we're paying uh, to to support the federal debt, um, as my colleague Romina Baccia, who is uh, one of our budget experts uh, at the Heritage Foundation, uh, noted that the four hundred billion dollars in interest on the federal debt is equivalent to the budgets of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, Homeland Security, Education, Better Affairs, State, Energy, and Justice combined. Uh, so wow. we're talking about just the interest on the federal debt. Um, and so without kind of some of these wholesale systemic reforms to our entitlement programs, uh, you know, with, with regard to healthcare and social security, uh, this is just a, a problem that's going to continue to get worse. and that the fiscal health uh, of the United States is going to continue to trend downwards. And and it's funny, as I as I look at the report, there's a comparison chart, and I'm going to link to this in the show notes. So to log on to, ch- to take a look at this chart, you see in terms of fiscal health, the U.S. ranking far below the average of the rest of the world. And even in our region, we're far below it. And if you think of ourselves, you know, we think of ourselves as leaders of the free world. And yet our fiscal health is so far down below the average. Um, that's, that's not what I would consider leadership. It's not. And uh, it, it's one of those areas where, again, uh, it. There's no direct incentive right now uh, for policymakers to uh, address the situation because we keep exporting our debt, we keep pushing this back and burdening future generations. And those type of tough decisions with regard to uh, reducing spending for uh, politically connected companies that may be in your district or making hard reforms to uh, entitlement programs, may not help you uh, with regard to your future election. And so there's a a real disconnect between what policymakers need to do um, versus what they're willing to do. You quote Milton Friedman in the beginning of this. You say the market gives people what the people want instead of what other people think they ought to want. At the bottom of many criticisms of the market economy is really lack of belief in freedom itself. And you talk about the connection between economic freedom and societal improvement, and that's unmistakable. You, you say it's an unmistakable link between those two. And hearing you talk about this, you know, we've got the score and then we've got the result of the score. Nick, talk a little bit more about um, the connection between economic freedom and societal improvement. Yeah, it really isn't just about getting a a better grade on a report card. It's about giving Americans a better life. Uh, If if you look at all of the major uh, kind of benchmarks of what what societies want for their people uh, in terms of um, infant mortality rates, in terms of levels of happiness, in terms of a cleaner environment, you know, All of these things tack uh, extremely closely uh, with economic freedom. And and, and again, that's really the the goal here. It's not um, just to say uh, we need uh, to get into the free category because we want to be number one in everything. You know, we want to be number one because we understand it's going to give people uh, a a much better standard of living. Uh, It's going to... Uh, allow people to uh, prosper more, to pursue their dreams. Uh, It's going to lead to 
better public health, um, you know, poverty uh, will be reduced, disease will be reduced, you know, all of these things uh, that we uh, associate with better standards of living um, are all have, they all have um, economic freedom as the foundation for the countries who do this well. And, and even I think it, it really undergirds, um, you know, some of the countries we look to um, aspire to, to mimic in terms of what they do well. What would you say is the most important thing that we can do to improve our standing? Number one, but not just improve, but if you had a wish list, if you could grab the ear of the most important decision maker and, and, and that thing would come to fruition, what would that be? Uh, if I had a wish list, obviously, I think fiscal health and government spending would be at the top. I know we already discussed that, so I won't spend too much time on that. Yeah. But also, I'll focus on uh, trade freedom and investment freedom, because that's one of the areas that we saw uh, dip a little bit, especially with regard to to trade freedom uh, with a lot of the tariffs put in place uh, by this administration. And I think the growing notion of uh, economic nationalism can be troubling uh, because it's coming from both the left and the right. And Mm -hmm. that leads to uh, a lot of uh, policies that will close off markets and close off opportunities. Yeah, by economic nationalism, you mean... um you know, we have to put America above every other option kind of a thing. Instead of it being more open and free, where we ever get the best deal, we'll go there. We say we're going to focus strictly on America. Is that is that kind of what you mean by America first? Yeah, that's right. And you're even seeing it in response to uh, the COVID pandemic is that um, because we've had open markets, the United States has been too vulnerable to and too dependent on uh, foreign suppliers for uh, what policymakers will deem essential businesses and goods. Um, you know, that's been medical supplies or in, in many instances in the past, it's been energy. Uh, but, but in this instance, it's for, you know, ventilators and, and respirators and masks and things like that. Um, but uh, as I mentioned in a recent op-ed, you know, there's been a shortage of toilet paper when we make um, more than 90% of the toilet paper here in the United States. The shortages that we're seeing uh, is a result of these extreme scenarios uh, where you have this unexpected spike in demand is going to create a shortage no matter where the good is produced. And Mm -hmm. and so uh, economists have largely said we need to keep markets open, not close them off, because that's only going to exacerbate food shortages or medical supply shortages. And my fear is that this is going to uh, renew and strengthen that call that we need an industrial America first policy where the government is prioritizing certain um, industrial and manufacturing processes at the expense of others. And we've seen this in the past, um, you know, with calls for uh, big government investments in rare earth minerals. Uh, We've seen it in uh, central laws like the, the Jones Act, which requires that goods shipped between two domestic ports be be, um, on vessels that are American built, manned and owned. Which is, by the way, that's basically halting Puerto Rico's growth, a a, a large part of it anyway, uh, because they're required to bring ships that are come that are uh, American manned and made. It's it's, it's a very, very devastating thing. The Jones Act. Yeah, absolutely. It it is. And and it's, you know, 
it's now a century old law, um, more than a century old law. And it was one of those things that we thought we were going to uh, protect the um, American merchant marine industry. And since then, the American merchant marine in- industry has atrophied significantly. Uh, and now it's inhibiting uh, both um, getting goods uh, to places like Puerto Rico, um, you know, in t- times of uh, a crisis, but also uh, just in normal times, it exacerbates all of the goods that we ship. And then American exporters lose out in shipping those goods to Puerto Rico, uh, to Hawaii and to Alaska, because it makes more sense for them to buy it from Canada or Mexico instead. Nick, leave us on a yeah, cheerful note here. I know we've been pretty critical um, and, and I kind of, I, I, I feel like we need to, especially where we're at right now in society, we need to end on a cheerful note. So, so lay it on me as cheerful as you can. Yeah, well, th- there's a lot to be thankful for. You know, we're still a uh, country in the United States that is mostly free um, and we have very strong uh scores on a a lot of uh, the subcategories of the index of economic freedom. You know, we, we do live in a a country uh, where our economic freedoms are protected uh, by a strong rule of law. We have strong private property rights, uh, which uh, allows people to, to own property and to uh, invest in their property, uh, which has led to a lot of um, economic growth, but also environmental protection. Uh, I think, Private property rights are a hallmark of environmental protection that often get let out of left out of the discussion. Yes, you know, as as economists say, you know, nobody washes a rental car uh, because you don't you don't take care of what you don't own. Hmm. And uh, both in the United States and around the world, private property rights have been a, a foundation for improving uh, the environmental well being of um, of different countries. And so there's a lot to be thankful for. Um, I, I do think that in the near term with response to COVID, uh, again, I think one of the, the positives that, that may come out of this is that we're seeing the benefits of open markets uh, and free exchange and of civil society helping people. Uh, and the more we can use that to rebound and recover as the economy starts to open back up again and we can protect public health at the same time, it's going to be those success stories that will hopefully drive uh, the right type of policy reforms that we want to see in terms of opening up markets uh, to really sustain an economic recovery. And that's it for another episode of Heritage Explains. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing with your friends and family. And thank you so much for leaving us comments. Now, you can do that a number of ways. You can leave us a comment wherever you listen. We know there's a lot of people on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram, so you can do it there. Or you can send us an email at managingeditor.com at heritage.org that's managing editor at heritage.org we read them and we respond and we can't wait to hear from you and for those of you who want to learn more information about the podcast today log on to the show notes i link to everything that we discussed there you can find the index of economic freedom you can find the report that we talked about you can find tv appearances all sorts of things that help you understand better now michelle's up next week she's got a brand new episode And we'll see you then. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by Thalia Rampersad.